Howdy, y'all. This is Volts, and I am your host, David Roberts. Those of you who have been reading or listening to Volts for a while now know that I am fairly obsessed with clean electrification, which involves shifting all the things we do now with fossil fuels over to electric equivalents, while, of course, cleaning up the electricity supply. One important nexus of electrification is the residential sector. U.S. homeowners are in a position to electrify their power supply with solar panels, their heating and cooling with heat pumps, and their transportation with electric vehicles. How can we induce millions of them to make the decision to electrify starting today? How can we make it cheaper and easier for them? To discuss that and related issues, I'm excited to have with me today two of the smartest people I know in this space. The first is analyst, inventor, tinkerer, and entrepreneur Saul Griffith, who will be familiar to longtime readers. I've cited his work numerous times, especially his most recent work with Rewiring America, which advocates for rapid electrification. There is probably no one on earth with a better understanding of the U.S. energy system. Griffith is a backer of and investor in a startup called SPAN, which makes smart electrical panels that offer homeowners fine-grained control over all their individual appliances, lights, and devices via an app on their phones, of course. The founder and CEO of SPAN, my other guest, is Arch Rao. Rao was the project lead for Tesla's Powerwall home battery before leaving to start SPAN, so it goes without saying that he is intimately familiar with the technical and economic challenges of home electrification. Welcome, Saul and Arch, to Volts. Hey, David. Thanks for having us. Uh, Saul, I want to start with you. We're going to talk about home electrification today, and just by way of setting context, um, I mean, I know that uh, it's pretty easy to make the case that home electrification is kind of fun. It's kind of cool. <laughs> but what is the what is the case that it is necessary and not only necessary, but necessary quickly? Like set the set the bigger picture for us. Oh, there's a few components to that. So let's start with the climate component. So the urgency um, we've dawdled for the last few decades. <laughs> and so the reality now is that. Well, actually, I'll step back again. There's a, a concept called committed emissions. So that is the emissions that a machine that exists today will emit while it lives out its lifetime. So if you bought a petrol or gasoline car last year, it'll keep burning gasoline for another 20 years. If you bought a natural gas furnace last year, it'll keep burning natural gas for 25 years, a hot water heater, 15 years, an oven burning natural gas another 12 years. So they're those committed emissions. Same as if a uh, coal plant went in last year, it would go for another 50 years. Um, we now know that if all of the machines that exist on the planet today live out their natural life, that, that the emissions, committed emissions of those machines takes us to about 1.8 degrees Celsius uh, over three degrees Fahrenheit of warming. So the urgency is, the practical reality is we need to at Every time any of our machines fails or needs to be replaced, we need to upgrade it with a zero carbon option. And the only real zero carbon option that has emerged is electrification. And that's electrification of our heat with heat pumps, of our vehicles, with electric vehicles, and then tying that all together and balancing the grid. Right. And what is the what is the chunk of of emissions from residential? Do you know that off the top of your head? Like what how big a role? Yeah, so 
so historically, we put emissions into residential sector, commercial, industrial, and transportation, and the residential is uh, 10 or 15% by that measure. Mm-hmm. But it's actually much higher than that because in reality, you make the decision about your car and your home, and when we electrify our cars, they're going to be mm-hmm. charged at home. And then today, as it stands, a huge amount of our economy in the US, close to 10%, is used to find, mine, and refine fossil fuels. So that's the pipelines and the trains moving coal. And that's all filed under industrial. So if you wrap up your pro rata share of that in your household, you wrap up the electrification of your vehicles, the the home is this, the decisions you make around your kitchen table are about 40% or 42% of our emissions. And in our small businesses and offices, um, what's traditionally known as the commercial sector, it's about another 20%. As I like to say now, there's two types of emissions. There's um, there's a small number of big machines and there's a large number mm-hmm. of small machines. The small number of big mm-hmm. machines is a few, you know, a few hundred coal plants and a few right. hundred LNG terminals and a few hundred oil tankers. Uh, but the real, the real game in town is the 200 million vehicles, the 128 million households, the 70 million natural gas furnaces, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the large number of small machines, um, which is what we need to electrify when we electrify the household. Right. And it's individuals in charge of those decisions. Um, one thing I hear a lot when I bring up this subject as a sort of general uh, kind of objection is from an individual value point of view, people like to say, if you want to save money in your house, you do the boring stuff. You do more insulation, you seal your envelope, and the sort of like sexier EVs and solar panels and and, and fancy electrical boxes are, are sort of at the bottom of the list. What's your general response to that? Either of you, really. Oh, I've been talking a lot, but I'm pretty happy to say I don't think that's true. I agree. Um, yeah. You think it it's empir- a- empirically wrong? Empirically wrong. There was a McKinsey study in 2008 that sort of drew this value curve of decarbonization. I think it was mm. poorly done by an intern and has set a lot of people off on the wrong path. <laughs> um, I probably shouldn't say that about McKinsey on, on, on public radio, but let it be, let it be done. Um, retrofits like envelope and ceiling can be very, very expensive because you have to remove walls. You have to stuff new insulation in those walls. Um I'm in a house right now that's in a mild climate, but is nevertheless freezing. I just had a quote done on on doing that task, and it was about $28,000. Holy. And just for listeners' benefit, uh, Saul is wearing a puffy jacket right now in his house. <laughs> I, I am. Um, and that would give me a, a, a small efficiency win in this house. Um of you know maybe 20% less energy use whereas buying the heat pumps to heat the house is about a $2500 project in this house and they will lower my energy use by two thirds for heating the house compared oh, to yeah. how it's currently heated yeah so the big efficiency win is the the big efficiency win in this house is the heat pump right yeah and just to expand on that right and doing a quick call back to Saul's um Really good ability to you know rattle off numbers that are very compelling. Um, we we have to be looking at technologies that change the outlook for us, not just looking back but looking ahead. And things like changing how we fundamentally heat our homes, how we fundamentally think about cooking and heating our water supply, 
um, is is the big game changer here. Right. <clears throat> well, following up on that, then Arch. Um, so uh, Span makes these smart electrical panels. And I guess I have a sort of a similar question for you. Uh, you know, the homeowner who wants to save money buys the appliances, I think, first, and maybe some solar. What, and, and having this sort of fine-grained, smart control over all the circuits, which is what Span gives you, <laughs> you know, is cool. Is It's like fun. I can think of all sorts of like cool, fun things to do with it. But what's the what's the pitch that intelligence is important or a necessary component of this versus just sort of like dumb appliance replacement? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I think often people have uh, to be walked through the sort of second order effect right. that a solution like the span panel can have for your home and, and your carbon footprint, right? Um, a very useful analog perhaps is in order to enable faster adoption of electric vehicles, we had to think about building charging networks or we are working to deploy a large number of chargers around the country and around the world, right? It's, it's kind of similar. Um, the electrical panel has a very critical place in the electrical grid infrastructure, especially mm -hmm. for your home. And without thinking about data controls and intelligence flowing in and out of it, it is very hard to envision a future state where switching over to electric appliances is uh, practical or inexpensive, right? So anecdotally, when you think about uh, replacing your water heater or your uh, home heating system, it, it doesn't happen outside of an event, right? You have an equipment right. fail and you think about upgrading it. And when that decision point arrives, the, the, the cost and the timeline for upgrading your electrical system is often... Um, it's not compelling, right? It's just too much for any homeowner to take on. They end up adopting uh, the easiest solution, which is often calling somebody on Yelp and saying, hey, please replace my water heater with another natural gas water heater. Right. And then they're locked into that committed emissions, like Saul said, for the next decade or more. Mm -hmm. um, so that's one, one part of the problem. The other part of the problem is when you think about the continued adoption of electric appliances, be it um, electric vehicles or electric induction cooktops or self-generation storage solutions like solar and batteries, the electrical panel, which is what everything connects into, is insufficient from a capacity standpoint. Mm. And that necessitates, like there's one marginal piece of technology that you might, that you'll pick in your home that over the course of this decade, I predict will force you to upgrade your electrical panel. And what we're allowing for is a smarter electrical panel that gives you controls and visibility down to every appliance, makes it easier to adopt these electric panels, sorry, electric appliances, and also potentially avoid the cost of upgrading your incoming service. Right. So the idea there is that SPAN will sort of uh, juggle the loads and the timing to kind of smooth out the demand curve so you don't have these spikes where you, where you might need like That's right. bigger hardware. I, I can touch on that. So the average U.S. household today has two cars in the garage that burn petrol or gasoline or diesel, and it has um, natural gas heating, and it uses about 25 kilowatt hours per day of electrical energy. If you electrify both of the vehicles in that household, you'll add about another 25 kilowatt hours to per day to the load of that house. And if you electrify the heat, you'll add about another 20 kilowatt hours again. Mm. For the majority of U.S. homes, and this is true around the world, in fact, um, 
when we electrify for purposes of decarbonizing or for purposes of having a quieter, cleaner car or because you're trying to improve the respiratory health of your children because <laughs> right. you don't want to burn fossil fuels inside your house, you're going to double or triple the loads in that house. Right. The, the other phenomenon that is happening is, and where I'm dialing in from today is Australia is an incredible example of this, rooftop solar is now providing five cent per kilowatt hour electricity in Australia. They, you know, Australia got the right mix of regulatory environment, politics, financing, that there is no way the grid will ever provide electricity to you as cheaply as solar. And so now everyone wants to, and that will be true in the US and is starting to be just starting to be true, but it's going to be very, very true by 2022, 2023. And then you're going to want to like run your hot tub when the sun is shining and then use the heat that's in that <laughs> later and you're going to want to charge your as charge your car as often as possible and charge your battery when the sun is shining and that needs coordination and that needs a computer and that needs a brain <laughs> and right. what we what we're trying to avoid is having both cars on a type 2 charger running at the same time as your oven right, is the same right, time as right. your stove is the same time as your hot tub and you know with a small amount of intelligence coordinating those loads there's actually quite a big economic win and it means that the total retrofit that we need to do is much smaller right and thinking about it from the bottom up as well right it's the the home electrical grid is built very much like the traditional electrical infrastructure you think about the worst case scenario and you try to build out capacity to support uh, a, a very low likelihood scenario of these EV chargers, your heat pumps, your induction cooktop, and all of the different appliances in your home being powered on at the same time. And that rarely ever happens, or in fact, right. never happens. Right? Uh, to be able to manage these, you definitely need a solution that sits at the nerve center of your electrical system. And that's really what spans by. So really, it's 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 really quite analogous on the on the household level as it is to the larger grid. You're just peak shaving you're 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 installing some intelligence to avoid big peaks and valleys right yeah there's some elegant comparisons we made here with fractals right we're moving into systems where your edge of grid looks more and more like the grid you have generation right. you have storage you have different types of loads and that load isn't necessarily going away so all these things we talk about uh, in terms of energy efficiency or reducing your consumption which is a concept that's existed for decades now is just not going to buck the curve quickly enough so if people want to continue to have the conveniences they have today, the solution is to electrify. The solution is to power it with known available, increasingly lower cost renewables. Right. Um, well, here's a, here's a slightly different question. Um, a lot of the promise of intelligence or software uh, on buildings is that the grid or grid managers will be able to interface with with the edge, the grid edge, and sort of coordinate it and kind of co-optimize it with the central generation so that everything works well together. What role, like a lot of what SPAN offers, especially sort of in its kind of marketing and its kind of homepage is like, here's what you, the owner, can do. You can set this or, you know, if this happens, you can turn this down and turn this up. And I just like have over the years picked up a real skepticism about how much we can expect people to do <laughs> really mm -hmm. period <clears throat> even even if it's directly in their self-interest and super easy like people just like generally as a behavioral matter will yeah. not will not do things so it, thinking about spam like what's the balance of user control versus automating yeah. things do you think about that a lot we think about that a lot actually so it's it's a two levels right at, at the homeowner level um what we've sort of 
zeroed it down to is monitoring without controls is not valuable, right? Which is why we're not just offering customers information and hoping that they'll adopt some kind of behavioral <laughs> right. change. And alongside that, controls without intelligence is not scalable. We have to work towards solutions that take the human out of the loop, which means doing nuanced but subtle things within a home that don't impact your everyday life, but at the same time are the right thing to do in terms of power flow management or appliance right. controls as the case may be. So to your point, like we, we definitely, the solution is at the home level, but we want to take the homeowner out of the everyday decision-making process. The second part of it is as, as we deploy more and more of our systems, um, we, we are seeing the benefit at a fleet level. And in fact, we've already signed mm. on a few utility partners that are looking to give this away to their customers or significantly rebate it because the panel, given where it sits, is the natural intersection point between the grid operator and the home. Right. Because it's it's where, like I said, everything that you uh, source power from, sink power into, and store power all naturally connects. That means you can have a single gateway, so to speak, that can monitor and control everything at a fleet level as well. Whether it's a um, you know an EV EV EVSC or an EV charger or an EV from any brand making model company, or whether it's a you know a smart thermostat from XYZ company, it doesn't matter. All of these can be uh, monitored and controlled through a single gateway. Right, but I guess I'm wondering, like, as you sell them today to to a to a average customer. Is mm -hmm. is the is the customer today in charge of doing <laughs> whatever is mm -hmm. to be done, or or does it come with some accessibility for for the grid? Like, to what extent are grid managers controlling things through Span now, or does that need some sort of extra sign off from the homeowner? Yeah, it, we're thinking about this as an um, you know opt out model, uh, where right. in in places where the customer is. Receiving the system from a utility, for example, we recently announced a program with Green Mountain Power and another one with Silicon Valley Clean Energy here in California, where the customers are, by design, enrolled into some form of load monitoring and demand management, demand response. Um, th this doesn't preclude them from, from overriding those requests. Right. At least now, the utility is, is giving them access to a piece of technology that, that allows them to control water heaters, and EV chargers and space heaters or um, whole home heaters, et cetera. And is Green Mountain giving them away? Is that who you were referring to? That's right. The first part of their program that, that we're running with them is they are, they're offering 100 systems to customers in their, um, in, in their territory, some that have batteries, some that have EV chargers, some that are just getting a main panel upgrade because they're getting an electric appliance to, to understand what the benefit to them will be. Um, and the plan is, as, as we demonstrate successfully, that this has value to both the homeowner and the grid operator to scale this up to, I think they have around 200,000 uh, homeowners. But there's another, yeah, I was going to say there's another interesting benefit to this, which is there are still a number of utilities in the U.S. that are filing for rate cases to adopt smart meters. And frankly, smart meters have, it's, it's the wrong name, right? They're not really that smart. They're, they're two-way communication radios. Our panel gives the, the energy company or the utility a lot more visibility at the whole home level and at the circuit level. So imagine by design being able to monitor the consumption of EVs, the production of solar, right. uh, the you know, major appliances, et cetera, and the controls. Mm. So there's a very strong case for how this can be um, offered nationally through existing utility companies and potentially even being rebated by the government to enable electrification. Just slotting this in where smart meters are now just as like a better 
a better technology, but for the same general purposes? That's right. This this takes the place of an existing smart meter. Uh, it, our, our, our product is ANSI C12 certified, so it's revenue grade metering at the home level and at the circuit level. Interesting. Stepping back a little bit, another another complaint I often hear about home electrification, and I'm curious uh, what both of you guys have to say about this. You know, whenever I bring it up online, the one thing I hear is, you know, I live in XYZ climate and my contractor says this and this. Basically, it doesn't pencil out for me. Like electrification would raise my prices quite a bit. And I think it's true probably in places where electricity is more expensive than, you know, natural gas per therm, which is, I think, a lot of places. So I'm curious how, like what percentage of homeowners can save money by doing this now just by sort of uh, just by virtue of of existing economics versus those who need some sort of incentive. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll jump on this one. I've spent my whole year <laughs> uh, answering this question, wearing a hat with Rewiring America, uh, <laughs> which is a an organization founded to, to not only answer that question, but to make the economics better and better and better. Um, right. One thing we looked at was at what point in the future, the household economics will be really positive for everyone. And that point is when the US achieves Australia's cost of solar installation at a dollar per watt on the roof. And when people are using electric vehicles and when we've electrified our heat. And when we get solar at a dollar a watt, when we get batteries installed for under $200 per kilowatt hour at the household, and when we get EVs to cost parity with gasoline and, and by the technology curves everyone's on, that's that moment is about 2024, which is practically speaking tomorrow. You mean for Every EVs hour- EVs specifically or for all that happening? No, if you get those three things to happen and you and, you, and we get C, the, the heat pump CRP, that's the third thing you need to to three or higher, meaning you get three units of heat for every one unit of energy or electricity you put in. At that point, every American household saves more than $2,000 per year on their energy bills. And we're, we're actually getting closer and closer there on EVs. A lot of the savings are driven by EVs, just for perspective, you know, 10 cent per kilowatt hour electric vehicle versus $3 a gallon gasoline, you're, you're three or four cents a mile for the electric and you're 20 plus cents per mile for the mm. gasoline. Carrier, uh, American heating and cooling company, just created a variable speed heat pump that's got a COP of four. So the technologies mm. are there. If you can install these things in the household without too much headache, then, then households will be realizing these savings. So I yep. admit <clears throat> that we're not quite there today. And one of the reasons you just mentioned it is because we haven't trained enough HVAC technicians. We don't have enough electricians. There's a lot of excess permitting that needs to be done. There's um, just challenges to the practical reality on the ground, but they're falling day by day. And there's more and more contractors that you'll find that will do you a, a heat pump and not recommend a natural gas heated to you. <laughs> and so the economics are flipping right now. But I do agree that the challenge is we've got to design and build for the future that's going to happen in 2024. Right. <laughs> and we have to we have to sell it in 2021. Um but that means that, you know, there are zip codes where it works. We just did a study, in fact, trying to help the, the, the White House on how many low middle income households would be in the black today, meaning in the money. They would already save by flipping to natural gas and it's tens of millions of homes and you can pick the zip codes in the country where it's most favorable. Um, so it's, it's a reality already. Is that 
like what is the what's the differentiating feature for those for those areas for the heating specifically which that work was done uh it's either because there's high natural gas or because there's low retail electricity in that location Mm. or because the climate is mild um Mm. so across the south and southeast uh there's a lot of homes in the money across the southwest and not the west coast there's a lot of homes that in the money um, gets a little bit harder in the middle and up the top of the country, but honestly, every year we're gaining five degrees of latitude in in heat pump performance. <laughs> creeping might, towards might Canada, creeping towards. We'll we'll get you Canada eventually. We'll electrify you, Arch. You 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 must have to deal with this. Yeah, the costs thing, upfront costs. Yeah, my perspective is you know I think solar provides really useful macro perspective and sort of the longer term horizon for us to enable this for every home. Uh, but, but expanding on one of the points he made, right? How do you get to that dollar per watt solar? How do you get to the sub $200 a kilowatt hour storage? I think we're coming at it from that inside out perspective of, of, of affordability, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what's driving our product design and innovation. When you think about the cost of delivered solar today to homeowners here in the US, um, a lot of the cost is operational costs, installation cost that stems from design complexity and customization on site. You're talking about residential, you're talking about building behind the meter solar. That's right, behind the meter residential solar. I'm, I'm chiefly talking about the, the category of customers that we're addressing right. with, with Span's uh, current, current set of products, right? And that's part of what we're trying to solve here. There is too much design complexity and there's too much design customization for this to get to a low enough cost for it to become affordable for every household. And what we do with our panel is to say, look, if you don't have to worry about relocating loads, if you don't have to worry about uh, changing the the ideal size of the solar that goes on your roof, because you're not as constrained by how much capacity the service has or the 120% role, if you will, then it makes it that much easier for us to reach more customers at a lower dollar per watt. And that's exactly what we're solving. And when we think about storage, right, and this, this is actually a very, I'd say, debated topic for us internally, Resiliency is just as much a need for low and medium income households. In fact, potentially arguably more of a need than it yeah, is right. for larger or more affluent households, right? Uh, but in order to get your whole home backed up or your essential loads backed up, most folks cannot afford to have two or three batteries, power yeah. walls or otherwise, right? And part of what we can offer is, you know, combine a single small battery, let's call it a 10, sub 10 kilowatt hour battery with a span panel, and effectively you can manage everything in your home and again, it, it goes back to the same point of affordability, lower capex, lower opex, and that's how we're going to move closer to a uh, you know a smaller carbon footprint, but also closer to enabling these customers to then take that next step towards electrifying their appliances. Right, and just spell it out a little bit why a span plus a small battery can do the same work as like two or three big batteries. Like, what 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 exactly is the magic there? So there's two pieces to it. One is uh, when you think about backing up an entire home, you are um, you are having to place a large bank of batteries sized to meet again what your um, maximum load could be. Right. Right. Um, and you also have to wire it up such that um, you are placing this bank of batteries upstream of all of your circuits or all of your loads. And in some places like California, that requires quite a bit of um, installation labor because you're having to disconnect. The meter, move all of your circuits and loads into a separate critical loads panel, et cetera. Um, with a span panel, we are a one-for-one replacement for your panel, or it can also serve as a sub-panel or critical loads panel. And, and it takes it takes in all of the circuits that you already have in your home 
with all of the existing breakers. So there's no um, on-site customization that's required there. Mm -hmm. But once installed, we are able to see and manage your load such that you can get um, more outage protection with a single battery than you can with two batteries because you're aware of what's consuming power during an outage. One surprisingly common piece of feedback we got from customers uh, when installing home batteries at Tesla was that they inadvertently discharged their home battery into their car during an outage, <laughs> right? Because <laughs> they didn't know any better. Right. They didn't know they were, they were experiencing an outage. So I think uh, we, we can solve the problem for some people by giving them you know, more batteries than they typically would need. But I think we can solve the people for all, we can solve the problem for all people by giving them a more uh, controllable and dynamically managed uh, load control panel. Right, so in the event of a brownout or a blackout, your span can turn off or turn down inessential That's right. loads, basically. It can prioritize. Right. Yeah. Today, for example, the interface is very simple. It's, it's designed for anybody to use where it says, here are my must-have loads, here are my nice-to-have loads, and here are hmm. my non-essential loads. And it all goes to the span app. And depending on the state of charge of your battery, or more importantly, how many hours and minutes of backup you have left, based on your load profile that we have a close understanding of, we will shed those non-essential loads first. And then when you approach, let's say, half of the capacity of the battery, we'll shed those uh, low priority or nice to have loads and send you a push uh. notification saying, hey, David, just so you know, you have another five hours of battery remaining. Would you like to shed anything else? Interesting. Right? And that's what we can do today and where we are headed um, because of the massive amount of compute and communication we have built into our panel is the ability to talk to your appliances. We will change the set point of your thermostat. We will change the, the frequency of your compressor turning on or off inside your refrigerator so that we can, we, we can actually get a lot more out of the same number of kilowatt hours, if you will, than you would if you were just blindly discharging it into a home. Right, so, so explain that a little bit. Today, it can basically turn up or down the amount of power going to the appliance. You're saying it'll have more fine grain control over appliances in the future? That's right. Today we turn off circuits, which is, you know, a harsh sort of customer experience. Right. Uh, right. Very soon we have the ability to, um, in fact, we've showcased this in, in previous demos, change the, let's say, the rate of charge of your EV or change the set point of your thermostat. Um, and in the future, we should, we're working towards capabilities where we can control most, if not all, devices in your home. And is that going to require any change in the devices or that's just more intelligence on the span side? It's just more over-the-air software updates that we can release. And as long as your device is quote-unquote smart, i.e. it has a $1 Wi-Fi radio, we should be able to talk to it. <laughs> and and uh, I forgot to ask this earlier, but does this uh, is this all also true of fossil fuel appliances? Like if I, my span connected to my natural gas furnace, does it have the same capacity to tweak fossil fuel Appliances, or is this an all-electric type of thing? Um, with any appliance today that has um, a digital interface, so if you had a fossil-based, uh, you know, heating system for your home, but it, it it was controlled through, let's say, a Nest thermostat, right. then we will soon be able to talk to the Nest thermostat and ask it to turn off or go to a higher set mm. point, so it's not trying to, um, you know, heat up your home at the wrong time. So that's that's possible today, but directly where we of course want to go is get to a place where the heating device itself is electric and we're talking directly to it. Right, right. Well, let's turn to another big topic, which I know, Saul, you've also burned a lot of brain cycles on. Um, we need to do this, all of this electrification, home electrification 
quickly. And, you know, the main thing we need to do to make that happen is fund it, right? That's always the choke point is funding and financing by the customer. And I know you've you've thought a, lo- a lot about how to, and, and there's actually, if you think about it, there's a couple of different sort of categories that need funding here. There's the appliances, the actual stuff, there's the smart management software, there's rewiring the home electrical system to be ready for, you know, 220 volt appliances and all of that costs money. And with customers, we let we know it's legendarily true that even if lifetime cost of ownership of something is much lower, the upfront costs scare people off. Basically, people don't like upfront costs. So so this is just all a long winded way of asking what's the right new mechanisms or tools to fund these things such that we can get them going quickly at scale? Well, it's a great question. And I think it it matters a lot which part of the market you're in. Uh, The good news is we are we have historically low global interest rates. So the set of goodies that we're describing are things that people buy every decade. And there's a lot of evidence to show you that most likely you're you're doing any one of these things either because you just moved house or you're refinancing your house or you've just bought a car or the new entrant in this game is you've just bought put solar on your roof. Mm. At any one of these interventions in your life, uh, most households typically say, well, we'll do a couple of things at the same time in that remodel or we'll move to a new house, we'll put these things in. Um, and at those points, we need mechanisms that tie the financing of these things to the refinancing of your mortgage um, and doing it at the lowest possible interest rates. And certainly, if you could apply mortgage level interest rates to all of these items, um, that it helps enormously with the uh, the financing of it. And in those that earlier study I talked to you about, you know, saving two and two to three thousand dollars a household, that happens when you can finance it against the mortgage. So the way I like to think about this is that the things we're talking about, the heat pump water heater, the heat pump space heater, the two electric vehicles in the garage, the two vehicle chargers in your garage, the span load center that connects all, all of them and has the brain, uh, and the induction stove and induction oven, electric oven in your kitchen. So it's about eight things. Um, there is a good argument that we should declare this national infrastructure. <laughs> Because mm. there will be a date in the future where my solar panel is running Archer's cooktop because I'm out of the house and, and he's at right. home with all the kids. Uh, and there'll, there'll, be a, there'll be a time where your home battery is supplying my car with some electrons um, because that's the nature of electricity and how this is all going to get connected together and balanced. And there's actually precedent for financing the suburbs and homes as infrastructure, and that's FDR created the... Fannie Mae in 1936 under the Federal Housing Authority, and the government stepped in and provided guaranteed infrastructure quality financing to build out the American suburbs. And I think if we can, we we will make this project collectively cheaper for the nation if we do something similar for this bag of goodies. And if we recognize that you get a discount if you install if you install any two of these things at the same time, it's cheaper than installing two of them individually because you'll have the same electrician wiring them up and doing it. So there's a discount if we're smart about how we do it. So when you get solar, do span and a battery as well. When you get an electric car, do span and an induction oven as well. Or 
you know, that type of thing will provide us discounts. And so that's a pretty good story, I think, for people who are homeowners and let's call, you know, the top 50% of homes. But I think the, the other thing we really need to recognize is that, you know, half of American homes are struggling to find $800, I think, is the figure in case of emergency. Yeah. And have credit rating problems. And this was before COVID and the economic disaster right. that was 2020. So I think we've got to be more honest with ourselves. Tax rebate, uh, you know, tax write-offs uh, for building these things aren't enough. We need point of purchase rebates, right? So we know that when people buy hot water heaters or air conditioners that more than half of the time it's under financial duress. Your wife is pregnant, your partner is ill, if water heater yeah. fails, you need a hot shower tomorrow. Right. You go to the store and they say, well, the natural gas one will cost you $100 less and I've got a contractor ready to go. And that's why people make that decision. So we need to think about this, not as tax incentives for the top households, but how do I make a point of purchase rebate right there for all households to do it? How do we do clever on-bill financing? How does the utility play a role in building out this infrastructure? Quite frankly, given the time frame required, every single possible mechanism is <laughs> that <laughs> right. that lowers the, the cost and lowers the brain damage of doing it at that point of purchase is, is what we have to do. Yeah, you know, the mechanisms like the investment tax credit already exist and products like, you know, SPAN already qualify for it because when you install a solar system or a battery system, and now the, the new measure that's been introduced allows for standalone storage to also take incentive of uh, the 26% tax credit. They, they are they, they are good and they are in, in place now, but um, I, I agree with Saul 100%, moving towards a model where we think about products like SPAN, uh, home electrification products, EV charging, as part of your home infrastructure and potentially part of the grid infrastructure allows us to go a lot farther in terms of what types of financing we offer. Um, I suppose not all that ironically, so before we brought Saul on board as an advisor to SPAN, him and I were independently thinking about the idea of a mortgage-based financing for improvements to your home, which is uh, which some, some folks may have connected the dots here. That's why we have uh, Wells Fargo on our cap table as an investor. We, mm. we brought on some other uh, leading digital mortgage lenders as investors, because we see a path towards offering solutions like this to every home through mortgage lenders and insurance providers. And is there interesting anything interesting to say about landlords, in particular renters and landlords? I know this is always vexing. It's another thing I hear whenever I talk about this online is, I'm a renter, I have such limited control. Um, what kind of problems does that raise? I don't think any of us, if we're honest, have a satisfying answer to that question yet. And so this is somebody will figure out the, the, the business model innovation or the piece of policy that will help. But, you know, I think what we can do is describe the world we'd like to get to where money is, you know, that two or $3,000 per household I just mentioned, that's $300 billion a year in mm. the US. There's a lot of options of where that money could go. Those savings could go to the bank that wants to finance you and make it in the interest rate. It could go to a company like Tesla or Sunrun who'd like to somehow benefit from selling the grid services. It could go to the utility. I think if you went with a guiding principle that we should always choose regulations where we return as much of that money as possible to the household, uh, where you've, you've got a good guiding principle and then you try to figure out how to make that happen. So you, you'd, in this case, you'd like to figure out the mechanisms and the regulatory environment that would motivate the 
renter or the landlord to both do these things and to pass some portion of those savings along to the household. Yeah, I mean, there's a combination of, you know, thinking about this problem from a technology standpoint, which is primarily what we're doing, thinking about this from a regulatory policy standpoint, which is a big part of what Saul and team at Rewiring are doing, and, and the alignment of like economic incentives, be it the landlord, the homeowner, the you know the bank, the solar installer, etc. I think th- there isn't a one form fits all here. Um, and going back to your original question, David, about funding, there's there's one piece that I think deserves just as much attention from a funding standpoint as the rest, which is building out the workforce that can scale this up rapidly, yeah. or providing offering training you know, or vocational training, if you will, to a larger a number of Americans, so that we can actually get these deployed at a scale and pace that will have an impact, right? There's about 60,000 licensed electricians in the US now, and that's, that's, a, that's woefully inadequate if you want to electrify every home in the next decade. Right, yeah, I was gonna return to that in just a sec. One more thing about the barriers for homeowners. You know, I think it's uh, pretty well known at this point that the closer you get to sort of home and hearth, the less you're talking about economics and the more you're, <laughs> You know, the more kind of the less rational uh, uh, interest maximizing you have and the more sort of like feelings and mythologies and just time constraints and and, and psychological constraints come in. All, all of which is to say that electrifying a whole home today is just, aside from the cost, a huge pain in the ass. So, and, and this is what I hear again, uh, uh, you know, when I talk about this online is, you know, people even in like places like California where you'd think would be sort of cutting edge on this. They're like, you know, I had to talk to six different contractors and their permitting boards and there's, you know, different vendors and trying to coordinate and trying to figure out which piece to do first and which, how to finance one piece with another piece. And just all of it is like the transaction costs seem enormous right now. And and I can say like, from my, from my own point of view, I would pay a lot of money to have to think about shit less, <laughs> generally speaking. Like if I have to trade, I'd rather pay the money. So I'm just curious, like what kind of- I, I think the process- answer is in, in your question. I think you've led yourself to the correct answer here. Yeah. What, 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 how do you reduce those, those transaction costs? Like what's the, uh, where, where, is there a future where I can just like call somebody and say, Hey, home electrification co you like, here's my check, please do all my stuff. And then that's the last I have to think about it. Is there, is there such a thing that's even possible? I think that's already emerging. Um, and it is a business model innovation away from being able to do it. There's a company in huh. Australia called Bright E that has similarities to a company in the US called Mosaic. They offer the financing. They have contractor networks. They're on this pathway to helping you. I don't. Neither of them offer the full package yet, but you know, I think there's a whole lot of companies starting to do that. And as a lobbying, they will be able to afford to pay full-time lobbyists to help change <laughs> the laws and the regulations in a way that you know, three people. Uh, you know, the other thing is rewiring America is focused on this because we've got to fix the rooftop solar regulations in America. In Australia, fifty in there's there's suburbs with greater than fifty percent of homes with solar on their roof, all enjoying electricity that's one third the price that the grid can offer. Yet in America, we still have less than two percent of homes with solar on their roof because it, it really it's still too expensive. That's we have a prevailing wage of thirty five dollars an hour in Australia, so it's not because of mm. uh, it's 
not because I'm in a wage. This is literally red tape. Like the future, we've red taped the future out of existence, and that's because there's been a there's been 120 years for fossil fuel to build regulations, inertia, workforces right. that work for it. So I think some combination of regulatory change and organisations lobbying for those change and then some combination of business model innovation and this is going to be true not just in one affluent zip code but every zip code we're we're really at the inflection point you know roughly with there's a famous photograph of new york city with 200 horse-drawn carriages in the foreground and one car and it's like it's like 1908 and then they have they show you the same street from the same point photograph taken 10 time 10 years later and there's 199 cars and one horse. <laughs> and we're at that 1908 moment with one yeah, electric right. house and 200 non-electric houses. <laughs> and it's all going to change this decade. And it will be a lot of contributions like exactly what Span is doing that will enable that. No one knows exactly the answer and we're all feeling our way there, but we're feeling our way there with a fair amount of intelligence about what needs to happen. Yeah. It's not coincidental that I recently wrote a blog about this this being our decade to decarbonize, right? If you think about the the growth in the adoption of solar over the last decade and a half, if you if you look at the just the the, the rate at which EV adoption has grown in the last half a decade, I, I'm strongly a believer and a proponent of the fact that this decade is going to be about electrifying many things in your home. And to your question about home electrification co. I don't think there's going to be one. There's going to be many, right? There are going to be companies like Span that are offering a combination of products that allow you to choose electric over gas. And it it truly does become as easy to adopt these as it is to get a home appliance, right? If you compare the shopping experience between getting, um, you know, a washer dryer installed in your home versus getting an EV charger or solar or a battery system installed, the latter is an order of magnitude more complex. Yes. Because if all the red tape that, that we just talked about, right? And the path to simplifying that is, yes, from the top down, improving uh, regulation, uh, simplifying standards, uh, moving towards you know policies like we have in California, where you have solar mandates and EV mandates, and soon hopefully an electric electrification mandate, and from the bottom up, which is how do you build pieces of technology that, are, that have become the new standard for every home that truly make it as easy to adopt a home battery or a, uh, you know, electric appliance as it is to get you know, a refrigerator delivered to your home from Home Depot. Right. Just just, just think about the, the, the events of the last month. Joe Biden driving an electric F-150. Now, that <laughs> in and of itself is amazing. The F-150 is the most produced car in the history of mankind. 42 million F-150s have been built so far. Doubled second place, which was the, Volk, the ubiquitous Volkswagen Beetle. Oh, so funny. this really matters. And what was not nearly as much in the headline because that was so exciting, but I thought was fascinating <laughs> and really interesting is that Sunrun is partnering with Ford. Think about that. To make the installation easier, to glue it to the household, to, you know, most cars are financed while you're financing your car. Let us just suggest that it might be a great time to finance this solar installation and this battery uh, and this upgrade as well. These things are happening and they are about to happen at lightning speed uh, and enormous scale. Yeah, I should right. I should note that I uh, we did a podcast with Lynn Jurich, the CEO of Sunrun, a couple of weeks ago, in which she discussed that among other things. I almost was going to raise that as an example of s- synergy among businesses. Sunrun is a good, good example of a company that grows up to become a home electrification co. Right, much right. like I think many other companies will, and perhaps they have to 
because just being a solar installer or a solar financier is is not going to cut it. Right. And are you thinking a lot about art, uh, Archie? Are you thinking a lot about like not just sort of like the technology of the span box and how to make it better, but are you thinking a lot about business models and partnerships and stuff like that? Like how to how to package things and ease the ease mm-hmm. transaction costs? Absolutely. So we're thinking about three pieces, right? We're thinking about how do we generate demand through channels that have haven't been the primary focus. Um, so today, I think most most um, energy or green energy solutions start with a conversation around the coffee table about solar. And I think that's mm-hmm. a missed opportunity because you could be thinking about you know a panel upgrade along with uh, adopting an electric heater or an EV charger or even just a battery without a solar system for your home, right? And that's that that we're seeing happen more and more often. And these are all technologies that can be installed by any electrical contractor. So we're seeing electrical contractors as a, as a key channel um, there. Um, we're we're working with mortgage lenders and financiers to make it as easy as you know giving away a span solution as part of your refi because that now makes your home that much closer to being a clean energy home and that being sort of the entry point to uh, to offering them better products or more products in the future. The second pillar for us is the fulfillment side. Like how do we how do we build a network of um, qualified service providers that can, like right. electricians essentially, that can install the system for us, but at the same time provide ongoing service to to the customers as well. And the third being technology partners. So think about um, uh, you know, either products either that we're going to build ourselves or we're going to partner with uh, OEMs for be it electric vehicle OEMs, right. uh, be it battery OEMs, be it um, other appliances in your home. That's that's where we're headed. Right, and and. On the regulatory front, you know, I, I think, um, you know, Lynn, Lynn <laughs> said this as well about, about Sunrun. You know, this is kind of her mantra now is this soft cost, soft cost, soft cost, dumb regulations, red tape. Like, I think it's coming close to being conventional wisdom now in the U.S., at least in energy circles, that like this is the big barrier more even than technology at this point. So are there specific, like is SPAN getting involved at all in, in lobbying for specific regulatory changes or specific laws? Like what's your top, what's your top priority there? <laughs> well, there are a couple of things. I think there are, there are big picture opportunities like the work that we're doing along with rewiring, um, asking for or setting up programs that can rebate the adoption of um, uh, upgraded electrical panels that makes it, that paves the path for home electrification. Then there are more um, nuanced but specific things like um, helping define standards for with NEC or with UL that really helps us rethink our arcane model of distributed electricity grids. When we think about building um, electric conductors and uh, circuit panels with oversized capacity for that marginal load to come on, right? So it's, it's across the whole gamut, but I think the biggest levers for us are going to be better financing and like what Saul talked about, in some cases, upfront rebates to, mm. to, to make it easier to adopt. Saul, do you have any particular regulatory targets that are, are approximate, top, top of your list? Uh, so this is how extraordinary the soft cost problem is for solar. You, you know, cost of solar modules now is 25 cents per watt. Uh, <laughs> the cost of installed roller on an American rooftop is $3 a watt. So let's just dispense with Good the grief. That, that this has anything to do with the cost of the solar. Uh, of that $3 in the US, about 75 cents is the cost of the sale. 
because American solar rooftop solar is slightly more expensive than the grid, you got to spend a lot of money to sell it. Three uh, times as much for the cost of sale as the cost of the hardware is crazy. That's uh, hilarious. There's, a, there's another 50 cents to a dollar in the costs of permitting, inspection, and those regulatory soft costs, right? So it really, you just got to get to this binary flip where you get over that, just getting rid of that sale cost because you get mm. below the, the right. cost of electricity, that's huge. Um, pretty much in every zip code, when it gets to $2 a watt installed, it's cheaper than the grid. That's r- r- rule of thumb. And just making bigger systems so that the, the people in the guy and girl in the white truck that are putting it on your roof can install eight kilowatts instead of four kilowatts is enough to pretty much get you to that $2 a watt. So we're really on the cusp of a very exciting moment on solar. Uh, a wonderful guy called Andrew Birch, or Birchy as he's known, has done a lot of work to do something called Solar App. This is uh, working with the National Renewable Energy Lab. It's an application, like an online portal that's going to make the application for the permits, etc., just much, much, much more streamlined and easy. That's oh, super yeah. important. Oh, I think, yeah. I, I think Lynn mentioned that as well. Yeah, huge. She's she's hyped on that. Everyone should be hyped on it. Everyone should. <laughs> Andrew, Andrew Birch should be known as Sir Andrew Birch in my books. <laughs> um, Sir Birchy. Uh, <laughs> that's that's important. Um, we need, and this is going to be a lot of things, but you know, every utility in every state has a slightly dysfunctional relationship with time of use billing and reverse metering. And we just need to all agree that we need a future of what I would call grid neutrality, meaning any generation resources treated equally, any storage resources treated equally, any opportunity for demand responses treated equally so that homeowners are motivated to put the maximum amount of solar in the maximum amount of vehicles in their garage and benefit from participating in all of these transactions to balance the grid. The utilities traditionally resist this because they also sell natural gas, so they don't really like (laughs) that. But the reality is we're going to double or triple the load in every household. And Rooftops aren't big enough to meet all of that. So the the, the the utilities, the electric utilities are going to see load growth. So they win no matter how they play here. And we just got to kill off the protecting the natural gas part of the business components and move towards grid neutrality. That will be regulatory changes that are going to be hard fought and they're going to have to be won in every in every state with people going to their regulatory rate hearings um, and it will be FERC regulations uh, and there's <clears throat> Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is debating a bunch of issues right now that are super important that will determine this future. And I think, you know, we know where the North Star is. The North Star is grid neutrality. Everyone gets to play and, and benefit from the resources that they install. And that is also going to bring down effectively the cost and maximize the savings for the homeowner. Is there, what what country is uh, farthest along the pathway toward grid neutrality, would you say? I love this question. <laughs> I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I want to hear Archer's answer, but I have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think, I think there are, okay, the, the Globally, the countries that I've seen be most forward-leaning when it comes to understanding the need for and and supporting the adoption of distributed energy and grid neutrality are Germany, Netherlands, Australia. Now, this is a blanket statement. They each have their own deficiencies in terms of how these right. programs are implemented. But I think um, I, I think they're certainly farther along than the U.S. right now, where where I think red tape is really delivering a crushing blow to the rate at which we can be and should be adopting rooftop solar batteries, electric vehicles, et cetera. 
How about you, Saul? Does that line up with your answer? No, I'm going to give you a different answer. That I'm going to give you two different answers, both of which might be funny. I think the unregulated markets uh, in Africa and Malaysia and and Southeast smaller countries in Southeast Asia are being very innovative, precisely because they have so little infrastructure they can write new rules as they go. Huh. I I wouldn't look to any Western nation to be perfect here. I think Australia is having to face up to this reality first, and that is because they got to very cheap rooftop solar first. They got to very high penetrations, 50 plus percent first. But Australia is dysfunctional in its own unique way. What you really want is a country (laughs) that has Australian rooftop solar policy, Californian or Norwegian electric vehicle policy, and South Korean or German heat pump adoption and policies <laughs> so if you i guess that country is called this is like a distributed energy sims here yeah it's it's kind of nor nor austria or something <laughs> yeah we'll, we'll, um, work, we'll workshop that but honestly if you could if you could have that country exist today that's the country that where the economics are very positive for the household so we know how to do this we just don't know how to do it in one place Couple final questions. One one that pops up a a lot. Um, I think is very intuitive. People are there in the U.S. first or in the world second places that are too hot or too cold to fully electrify a home. Very cold places are difficult. Although heat pumps are getting better and better and better for the heat, the places that are cold enough generally are also quite wooded so there is a good opportunity for wood pellet or just traditional wood stoves so there are places in the world where a wood stove is still going to be the cheapest way to heat your house and it can be renewable um in australia there are states like tasmania where that wood-fired heat supplements the electrification of the rest of the house they're already 100 percent renewable grid with hydro so they're sort of home and hosed if you like there are other places in the world such as arizona or queensland northern Territory, australia where the the biggest mismatch between electricity generation and load is the peak <coughs> summertime air conditioning hours so the mm. sun the solar peak is at two o'clock in the afternoon and the air conditioning right. peak is at six PM. Right. And we've got to we've got to match that. The heat the ones where that is the case for heat, you know, small amounts of storage, whether that's thermal storage or electrical storage, can bridge that four hour gap and you're in good stead. Uh, there are technologies that we're working on a thermal storage technology that can bridge the sixteen hour gap between the solar generation periods and when you want heat at 4 a.m. So that's the heating problem. Um, There will always be a few small zip codes where there are exceptions, but I think we now pretty, everyone can squint and see that we have answers for nearly all of these cases. Hmm. And Arch, you're you're selling all over the country? We are selling nationally right now, yeah, across the U.S. Um, We've now deployed, I want to say, in over 18 states across the country, uh, temperature or you know the, the efficiency of heating or cooling hasn't been a barrier to adoption of span panels or adjacent technologies um, for, for an electric home. Huh. And are you are span customers saving money now? Are you tracking usage or trying to get data uh, on usage and, and finding out what people are doing and what actual results on the ground are? Yeah, we certainly are. I think the metrics that we are most closely tracking are you know, especially when coupled with the battery, are they are they getting empirically sort of this this benefit of going with fewer batteries? And we're seeing we're seeing that with a span panel, you get roughly 1.65 to 1.7x the value per 
kilowatt hour available because of how we can manage the loads. And I think that's that's quantifiable value. Um, the other metric that, that we often look for is what is the reduced time to install and cost of you know, installation labor that then directly translates into uh, a lower dollar per watt or dollar per right. kilowatt hour to customer. And we're you know, we're seeing that play out more and more significantly, especially right now for, for a couple of reasons. Um, the electric panel as we have it uh, designed is is a you know UL67 box. What that means is it's an over-the-counter permit. So the, the permitting for a product like SPAN is by design a lot shorter than the permitting for a rooftop solar system or a battery system. So we're able to get we're able to help our installation partners get projects going very quickly. Mm. Um, and uh, right now, because of the sort of global supply chain constraints, we're seeing that uh, there's a there's a very significant supply shortage of lithium-ion batteries as well. And right. especially in those cases, as we approach summer here um, in the northern hemisphere, like we have we have installers that are able to go back to their customers and offer them a span panel plus, say, one battery as opposed to the previously designed three, two or three battery solution mm-hmm. and, and able to help them move to a more um, self-sustainable lifestyle. Right. Um, two quick questions for you, Saul, uh, <laughs> that are sort of, uh, let's say, nerdy, nerdy questions, but I have you here on the phone, so I'm going to do it. It's air source heat pumps versus ground source. What's your... How far do you think ground source is going to get, or do you think air source heat pumps are going to get good enough to do everything? Do you have a, do you have thoughts on that? So ground source heat pumps for everyone's benefit are where you use the temperature of the ground as the input right. to your heat pump. Um, the ground about four foot down around the country is about 55 degrees Fahrenheit all year round. Air source heat pump just takes the outside air. The ground source heat pumps require something like an enema for your front yard or your back. <laughs> yes, I've seen it. I've uh, seen the pictures. It's a lot of drilling equipment. It's a very high capital item. I think if you're doing a new build home in New England, or if you have large acreage in New England, it's a no-brainer to go with geosourced, ground-sourced. Uh, I think any milder climate, the, the ease of installation of air-sourced looks like it will be the answer. As with nearly everything on climate, electrification, energy, these are giant markets where there's room for both players, and the details right. will be around local regulations, local geography, local climate. Right. And so the answer is yes and or both. Um, <laughs> if I was picking the market share in 2036, I'd say 80% air source, 20% ground sourced is ambitious for the ground source. Or so it's 80, 20 or 90, 10. Uh, unless we get robots that can drill holes really well and take all the <laughs> headache out. So there are, you can- you, you still need the physical space to drill the hole, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, most people don't have enough land under their house to sink the heat. Right, right. Uh, especially if you're building new developments, if you're doing a common ground source heat pump for multiple buildings, that's incredibly probably the most most efficient way. This is the decade for change. So don't rule out unexpected solutions like, right. you know, we've got to do something with all the there's millions of miles, 4.4 million miles of natural gas pipelines in the country. Yeah. Why don't we use that as a ground, a collective ground source? Yeah. Um, so it's not impossible to think there might be, you know, a solution in in lane three <laughs> that <laughs> right. that uh, that that helps solve this. But 
you know, I think ease of installation certainly and low cost of capital certainly favors airsource. Right. Okay. S- second nerdy question. I recently found out, I guess somewhat to my surprise, I probably shouldn't have been surprised by this, but that the battery in the for- new Ford pickup is actually bigger than a power wall. It's bigger than a home battery. So in terms of home power backup, what percentage in 10 years will come from home batteries versus connected ev batteries overwhelmingly electric vehicles so oh yeah really overwhelmingly not even there's daylight to second place here um (laughs) your any electric vehicle is going to do 250 plus miles which is basically where everyone real their range anxiety just goes away at 250 miles uh the battery in a sedan that does that is going to be 60 plus kilowatt hours for a for a truck it's going to be 100 plus kilowatt hours so that's four days of your current electrical load in your house the average home you put there's 1.88 cars in every driveway in america so that's like a week backup um the the power walls the the lg batteries that people putting on the side of the house they're like five to ten kilowatt hours that's very very small fraction it's actually our the our thermal system so i'm working on a thermal storage technology as are other people so the the being able to turn your space heat and your water heat into storage and turning your vehicles into storage opportunity those two batteries dwarf any other battery that will be on the grid 10 years from now interesting so so what's the case for home batteries then well occasionally both cars are out of the house and you still want to play your xbox that's that's really it then just sort of like backup for the backup i i I don't fully agree with saul's point of view on this uh actually i quite disagree Uh, i think the idea of powering parts of your home with a vehicle is is certainly like the vehicle to home concept is certainly a powerful one especially as you think about the fact that the, the size of the battery in your car is roughly 10x or at least you know 0.5x the size of a like a home stationary storage battery, if you will. But the the um, the emotional choice for a homeowner to say I'm going to take the energy available in my uh, in in my car's battery to power my home, I think it's a difficult one. Um, it's it's kind of the analog to saying I have a large power generator in my car with my petrol engine and I'm going to use that as a genset for my home. Right. Um, <laughs> right. Uh, I, I think. But if you're in the, the middle cost, of a blackout, it's honestly, a we're not even. <laughs> this is ridiculous. We're not even disagreeing. It's just that this is a huge battery. There are so That's few right. time periods in the year where you're going right. to want these things. This is this is not even an argument. You there's there's a huge <laughs> number of reasons to have a small battery on the the home, but you really just need to understand our car battery is enormous. You could st- if mm-hmm. if if we put those batteries in two hundred million cars, the whole grid for the whole U.S. can run off our cars for days at a time. But that never happens because you That's still right. have solar, you still have wind, you still have all of these things happening. But the the anxiety we have about storage goes away as we deploy batteries in vehicles, batteries in homes, and batteries in our thermal systems. And the cost of stationary batteries comes down as we continue to adopt more electric vehicles and batteries yeah. at home as well, which I think makes room for not just thinking about storage as being a backup to a backup type of solution, but instead a device that can uh, provide you, you know, energy management, if you will, right? Being able right. to ch- charge when the cost of energy is high when you have excess solar, et cetera. And there's sort of benefits to it that aren't provided by a vehicle where, where the primary use is actually to get around. Mm. The second part of it that I think has spun up a lot of conversations since the F-150 announcement is how does it actually island your home and power your, your loads? Because it's, it's a giant battery, granted, but you still need a whole host of power electronics 
and grid connecting, grid disconnect devices. That's what Sunrun um, is, 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 that's what Sunrun's trying to sell alongside the, the pickup truck, right? I mean, that's, that's the piece they're trying to provide. Um, yes, they're going to be installing those solutions, but I'm saying by and large, we, if, you, if you were to generalize the problem statement to there are going to be millions of electric vehicles, not just Ford F-150s, what is the ideal solution for being able to, quote unquote, island your home and power it off of your vehicle mm-hmm. battery, right? I think those are the kind of products and solutions that we're thinking about here at Span. Like within our panel, we already have a grid disconnect built in. So uh, you, can, you panel, can go, you can island if, if you have a span sort of automatically that's built in? That's right. So our main breaker has its own control system built into it where it's monitoring the health of the grid. And if it determines the grid is sagging or it's right. out of spec from a frequency or voltage standpoint, we automatically safely disconnect and bring mm-hmm. up your battery as the main power source for the home. And it can then orchestrate your solar and your loads as needed mm-hmm. to, then, to then manage that uh, quote-unquote off-grid home, right? And then when it's safe, it safely rejoins the grid, making sure that it doesn't cause in any way uh, issues on the grid because you want to be careful about uh, frequency when you rejoin the grid. You want to be careful about how much power you push back into the grid when you rejoin the grid, et cetera. Uh, and that's all built into our current generation product. But as we think about future products, the, things, the types of things that we spend a lot of time thinking about are exactly the question that you're asking, David, which is, can cars provide power, not just when off-grid, but even when, when you're powered from the grid? It, does it make sense for us to use? It's sort of like a day-to-day thing. That's right. And what are the types of technologies you need built into the nerve center of your home, i.e. the load panel or an EV charger that allows you to do this in a seamless way without having to go through a really complex, again, design process and having a smorgasbord of stuff on your garage wall just to be able right. to use that expensive battery in your car. Right. It's going to be a pretty uh, cheap battery. <laughs> um, uh, okay. I've kept you too long. So I'll, I'll wrap up with my final question. Um, if you could create this country that we're, that we have not yet named this theoretical country with the Renewistan, Renewistan <laughs> with all the best uh, distributed energy uh, policies it, in together, do you guys seriously think that we can decarbonize 100% of U.S. homes in by 2035, which is a, a allegedly the 100% clean grid target year? I think people get daunted by it's so distributed. The work itself is so distributed. The use cases are so distributed and so various. And there's so many different kinds of homes and kinds of owners. And it just seems so daunting. Do you all think that full residential decarbonization within a couple of decades is a realistic prospect? Yes. And I think the alternative scenario is, is, is a very bleak one, <laughs> right? Like I think we have to align products and policies and people to, to move towards a totally decarbonized, at least decarbonized homes. I think decarbonizing industry is a whole other right. can of worms that let's, this, this call is probably not the best place to open right now. <laughs> um, but, but I would say, yes, it's possible. And we, we need to be working towards doing that. And that's what, that's what we're trying to do at SPAN. I'm sure that's what Saul and his team at Rewiring are trying to do as well. We need to make it possible. It is Physically and technical, po- technically possible. Honestly, even industry plays its role here. The more things you electrify, the easier you make it to electrify everything. We will electrify steel making. We will electrify the manufacturing of aluminum. We will electrify a huge amount of industry. Then you dial up in dial industry up and down. There's huge inertia in those machines, and so they will be a grid asset. Just like your, yeah. just like your car batteries, and just like our yeah. home heating systems, and they will be critical to balancing it. 
And it, people really don't appreciate that. So it'll be about the same amount of wire that's distributing electricity to the grid, but three times as much electricity will go over it. More than half of your utility bill cost is the cost of that distribution network, those tele, those utility pulses. Distributed over time. So if we're putting two or three times as much electricity over it, the price of that distribution cost is going to come down. The more we electrify, the cheaper it gets to electrify everything, the easier it gets to electrify everything. So this is possible. Yes, it is heroic. Yes, the timeline is now the only remaining answer. <laughs> and good climate outcome is we do this in 15 to 20 years. Terrible climate outcome is we drag our feet and we take 40 or 50. All right. Well, there's uh, an appropriate call to arms uh, to end with. <laughs> uh, Come on, we can do for- this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, guys, for taking all this time. Appreciate it. Thanks, David. All right. Bye now. See you.